Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ram Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. Thank you so much. A very warm welcome to each of you. It means so much that you would choose to spend your Easter Sunday here with us. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If you ever come to church and um, you're surprised by the biblical story or the text that they read, this is probably not one of those Sundays. Uh, It's pretty obvious the story we're going to read together. And then my hope is that you leave here with something fresh from this story. When you live in a nation like ours that has a history, centuries of this story being read and understood um, on certain levels, there's a fresh chance on an Easter Sunday. And for some of you, maybe that's hearing the story for the first time, maybe even though we live in a nation where this this is being, is being talked about in churches, in towns, in villages, and cities across our nation. Maybe you've never heard this story. But if you've heard it before, I want you to lean in with fresh ears today because the beautiful thing about the Word of God is we can always leave with something fresh. Anybody believe that? So um, before I read, I just want to pray over us and the reading of the Word. Father, thank you for this beautiful Easter morning. Um, we bring ourselves to the word today, but we know that uh, the only reason um, that we can get anything today is because first the word drew near to us in the person of Jesus. And we come today with fresh hunger in our hearts. We open our minds. We open our hearts to receive from you. We want to see you today in a fresh way and be changed from the inside out in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So we have quite a long reading today because there's just so much in the story that's that's beautiful to be read. So open up your Bibles, John chapter number 20. It'll also be on the screens. And we're gonna read verses one through 22, one through 22. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who'd reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise 
from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I've not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brother's and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. The central claim of Christianity is that round about the year A.D. 30, a poor Jewish man from northern Israel named Jesus was publicly whipped and beaten and then executed by being nailed to a wooden cross. His dead body was placed in a sealed tomb and within three days he resurrected from the dead unassisted. Eyewitnesses from members of the public, Jesus' followers, his close friends, wrote testimonies of seeing and spending time with him over the following 40-day period after his resurrection and before he ascended to heaven. There were hundreds of witnesses, and we have documents written within decades of his death describing these events in detail. Thousands of these documents still exist today. This event, more than Jesus' preaching, more than his healing miracles, more than his command of nature, more than the hundreds of prophecies that his life fulfilled are why we're here today. Nearly 2,000 years later, it was this event that authenticated Jesus' most audacious claim. The Father and I are one, John 10.30. In essence, he was saying, 
I am God. Since then, unlike other messianic movements that started in the centuries surrounding Jesus, Christianity grew rapidly. Jesus' followers were fueled by what they'd seen. Some would say they were even transformed. What followed was unprecedented in that time and in history. Communities began forming around these witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. These people began having fresh encounters with the ministry of Jesus, healing miracles, profound teaching from the Jewish scriptures, and transformed lifestyles of radical generosity and sacrificial service. These spiritual experiences spread from city to city and region to region, and they were unified by a common theme. Jesus was continuing to show up, but this time in spirit. Jesus promised his spirit would come, and he was coming to people groups from North Africa to Turkey, Central Asia to Southern Europe, Those separated by language, culture, native religion, and social status, they all had the same experiences. God's Spirit was making himself known as people told the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. While these spiritual encounters sparked new communities, it was the early Christian social action that gripped populations across the Roman Empire. Christian communities collectively supported thousands of widows, rescued countless abandoned infants, started hospitals and feeding centers, taught reading and writing to underserved communities, broke down class structures between the rich and the poor, those at society's center and the diseased outcast and slaves. So compelling was these early Christian social engagement and their relentless, costly compassion that one of the forces behind the Roman Empire eventually adopting Christianity as its official religion was so it could take over the church's welfare institutions, which far exceeded their own. If you're new to faith or new to Christianity, first of all, welcome. The implications of these historical uh, historical events may not be readily apparent, but quite simply, the spread of Christianity is one of the most profound movements in history. Professor Michael White from the University of Texas says it like this. From a historical perspective, the growth of Christianity is in the second and third centuries really is a phenomenon to be reckoned with, both socially and religiously, and it's still shaping us today. Political commentator and atheist, Chris Berg, described the impact of Christianity on the Western world this way. Virtually all the secular ideas that non-believers value have Christian origins. It was theologians and religiously-minded philosophers who developed the concepts of individual and human rights. Same with progress, reason, and equality before the law. It is fantasy to suggest these values emerged out of thin air once people started questioning God. 
Yet many modern human rights activists seem to believe that human rights sprang forth full-bodied and with a virgin birth in United Nations treaties in the mid-20th century. Nothing could be further from the truth. The idea of human rights was founded centuries ago on Christian assumptions advanced by biblical argument and advocated by theologians. Modern supporters of human rights have merely picked up a set of well-refined ethical and moral arguments. But how did this happen? Professor Elaine H. Pagels from Princeton University expresses this question. Most people who study the origins of Christianity are curious about how this unlikely movement would have succeeded in such a powerful and dramatic way. And it's not an easy question to answer why this movement succeeded when others did not. And to answer this question, we can divide our historian friends neatly into two categories. Those that believe miracles are possible and those that do not. For the historians that don't believe miracles are possible, that a, quote, resurrection could have sparked this unprecedented movement, then it's not even an option. The historical tools they're left with are varied, but some would say insufficient in explaining what's happened since. But for the historians that do give room for the miraculous, Jesus' resurrection provides one of the most compelling and can we say simple arguments to explain where we are almost 2,000 years on. Thank you, George. But today, it's actually the personal side of the resurrection that I want to focus on. Two things I want to highlight from John's account of the resurrection that we just read. The first one is the open tomb. I think we should ask ourselves, why was the tomb opened? Did you notice in that, in that account, the tomb was open? There's another account that describes the stone was rolled away and there was an angel sitting on it. Kind of like, look what I just did. And we have to ask that question because we know Jesus didn't need the tomb opened. Uh, we see f further on in John chapter 20, he, he's quite good at walking through walls. There's something about his resurrected body that is physical but um, transphysical. It's beyond our biological capabilities. It's glorified. It's redeemed. So Jesus didn't need the stone moved. He certainly didn't need a lowly angel to push it out of the way for him. So why was the tomb opened? It's as if Jesus wanted them to look in. Perhaps this is why the tomb was opened. It wasn't opened to let Jesus out. It was open to let us in. This first clue is a sign. And it's not just a historical fact. But this morning I want you to see in it a personal invitation. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't just take their word for it. Come and see for yourself. And today I want to invite you into the open tomb of Jesus. The second thing 
that gets my attention about John's resurrection story is Jesus' greeting. Jesus didn't emerge from the tomb like a footballer who scores a winning goal. He didn't do a knee slide in, in the garden up to Mary. He didn't shout, check it out, I'm alive. In fact, his greeting was so subtle, she didn't even recognize him at first. Now, perhaps that's because her eyes were blurred with her own weeping. Regardless, Jesus' response is important for you and I today. He doesn't introduce himself. He simply says, Mary. And I want to tell you today, this truth is for you. The resurrection will become real to you today when you hear the risen Jesus calling your name. Before I continue, would we be bold enough to pray this prayer together? It's this next slide. Jesus, I'm listening. Would you speak to me today? I'm going to talk about four directions Jesus' resurrection changes for you today. Four directions Jesus' resurrection changes for you today. Backward, inward, outward, and forward. First, backward. In resurrection, God addresses our history backwards. But you see, resurrection doesn't destroy our past. It actually dignifies and redeems our personal stories, our cultures, and our histories. And it brings us into a family of the redeemed. We see in the resurrected Jesus that God resurrected and glorified what died. He didn't recreate what died. Jesus died a Jew and he was raised a Jew. Jesus died a man and he was raised a man. Jesus was probably short. He died short and he raised short. Resurrection is not about destroying your individuality. It's about redeeming and glorifying your identity. It's seeing it swept into a bigger story and joined with a resurrected people. In short, resurrection brings life. The Apostle Paul says it like this. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, you, me, we too might walk in newness of life. We're the same person 
but the stain of our failure and brokenness is removed from us. This truth was so profound to the songwriters in the Old Testament that Psalms 103 says it like this. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. Paul saw this profound redeemed community to so transcend our own individual histories that he described this new people like this in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There is an identity you're invited into that transcends anything you've known up to this point. I love what Will Williman says about this redeemed community. And if you're new to, to, to church or a faith family, that's what you found yourself into today. The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life together is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community, that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. The first directional change the resurrection provides for you is backward. The next one is inward. You see, the cross was necessary because we don't just need new behaviors. We need new natures. And the cross is not primarily something to be rationalized. It's something to be looked at. It's something we understand through experience. It's not an abstract concept to be dissected. It's something we stare at. Like our greatest experiences in life of pleasure or beauty or passion or celebration or heartache, you don't create outlines, spreadsheets, and PowerPoint presentations. You live them. How do you understand the cross? You look at God hanging there. God personally and willingly emptying himself of his divine privileges. Not giving directives about how to deal with pain and suffering from the sidelines of life, but jumping on the field subjecting himself to human brokenness. It's that God hanging there, forgiving the ones beating him who calls to us, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. You don't just think about this. You look at it. Why, though? Because your best rationale may deal with your behavior, but the cross 
deals with your nature. We know the issue isn't simply out there. Surely we're honest enough to know that the issues with humanity and the world that just takes about 10 seconds of watching the news are not just out there. Certainly we know they're in here too. We know there's something fundamentally flawed in us. And the Apostle Paul addresses this inward direction. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says this, Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs, and it's foolish to the Greeks, that's you and me as Gentiles, who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. And the cross is offensive to the religious because we're often trusting in something already. Those of you maybe who live morally excellent lives, who feel like at the end of this, you're going to be all right because, well, you, you lived a good life. You volunteered at your local charity or you lived better than your neighbor. The cross is offensive to us. What are you trusting in today? Maybe you're trusting in your own togetherness, your own goodness. Some of you are here today don't see the cross as necessary because you're strong enough without it. The problem with this is that when we base our worth on our own goodness, we exalt self to a dangerous level. We become the center. We become prideful, which means we actually become part of the problem. It doesn't matter how good you are. Some of you, though, you see the cross as nonsensical. It's not that you're building your own worth through your performance. It's that you reject the idea of right and wrong altogether. Uh, there are social constructions made to reinforce the power of the elites and oppress others. The cross is a useless manifestation of militant religion, wanting to control people. There are two problems with this. The first is that the cross wasn't invented by religion. It was invented by the Roman Empire to make a public display of political dissidents. God wasn't using the cross to punish people. God was subjecting himself to the death of his oppressors so that he could declare ultimate victory through sacrifice and the power of resurrection. The second problem with this commitment to see truth as relative is that while it calms the fears of oppression, it can't dim your cry for justice. Because justice demands that we call wrong, wrong. 
and that wrong things be brought right. But who gets to determine what's wrong and what's right in a relativistic world so that justice can be exercised? Who can be trusted with this level of insight and power to tell you what's wrong, to tell others what's wrong, and to tell you what's right, and to tell others what's right? Surely there's no one but Jesus. Having power to give life and destroy life, instead he lays down his life. Number two, inward, is about having a new nature from within. The Apostle John says it this way in John 1, verses 12 and 13. To all who have believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This opportunity is for you today. What's the opportunity? John says it right there, to believe and accept. And the opportunity then is to have legal standing. I love that John uses the word right. We're into human rights, aren't we? <clears throat> the word right is a legal term, which means it has nothing to do with your performance. It's a legal shift. Just as when Stacy and I got married, it didn't matter how good of a husband I was. Thank God for that. We were legally married the first second we said I do as we are now. It was a legal shift. Today, believing and accepting what Jesus has done in death, burial, and resurrection literally shifts you from death to life in a moment. The first directional shift for you was backwards, next inwards, and third, outward. Christianity is not just a spiritual faith. Did you know it's also a religion of the body and the outer life, too? In our postmodern world, we're not quite sure what our bodies are all about. We have a strained relationship with biology. But Christianity elevates the body and then it sanctifies it through the resurrection of Jesus. Paul would describe this reality by saying in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? As an Orthodox Jew, Paul could not have used a more sacred place to compare your body to than the temple. 
He could not have elevated the body any higher than to compare it to the center of Jewish life, national identity, worship, and thought. Through Jesus' resurrection, even your body becomes purified and holy, able to hold and host God himself. Maybe you look at your body and you notice the brokenness or the flabby edges or diminishing faculties or maybe you have a disability or the marks of a past accident. But this is also reflected in the resurrection. To prove his identity, Jesus pointed to the broken parts of him, his scars, the marks of what corrupt power and religious extremism had done to him. He did not run from his scars. In fact, we will forever worship the one who has been pierced for us. Isaiah 53, 5, Zechariah 12, 10. It's not the perfection of your body that's the mark of resurrection. No, that's the story Arndale and Market Street and Trafford Center are selling. Only perfect bodies are worthy of admiration. In resurrection, it's the body filled with God's spirit. It's his spirit that makes your biology transcendent. It's God's spirit in you that glorifies you. Unlike the postmodern project that wages war on biology in search of transcendence, God comes and fills you as you are and elevates you to a heavenly status. The Holy Spirit is not residing in heaven. God has made his home with humanity. John 1.14 and Revelation 21.3. Paul goes on to say in his radical discourse, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Some people think of Christianity as primarily a behavioral code. Church like an endless seminar of do's and don'ts. But behavior has never been at the center of Christianity. Behavior is seen twofold. First, it's evidence of your newness within. And second, it's a tool that shapes and forms you. It's evidence in that you start to behave differently because you are different. And it's a tool to shape you in that you change, as you change your behavior, you live differently inside of your behavior. Like a home renovation, the structure shapes the life within. And as you shape your life in accordance with God's good instructions, you discover life abundant and thriving. Backward, inward, outward, and forth, forward. <clears throat> when it comes to your future, most of us, most of us will say, I'm, I'm good. <clears throat> I don't need faith, I'll, I'll take my chances. And I just want to humbly say, not so fast. Perhaps you're not as independent as you think you are. 
perhaps your reasoning and your logic and your education won't take you where you think it will. Even Charles Taylor, the great philosopher who, <clears throat> who's one of the greatest advocates of living the discover who I am philosophy. Even he admits, look at this quote, that we define our identity always in dialogue with, sometimes in struggle against the things our significant others want to see in us. Even after we outgrow some of these others, our parents, for instance, and they disappear from our lives, the conversation with them continues within us as long as we live. What is Taylor saying? He says, at the end of the day, no matter how in control of your own life you may think you are, your past pain, experiences, relations, upbringing, place of birth, are shaping your future more than you realize. The only way to secure the true path of your life in the future is not inside of yourself, but outside of yourself. It's to find someone or something not bound by your own cultural moment, your own upbringing, your own class, or your own education. A person who's not driven by your aspirations for success or reacting to the shame of your youth or clouded by the residue of betrayal or childhood trauma. But this person also has to understand these very human things. Our shared experience of pain, loss, and suffering. You see, this is why it's not simply helpful that Jesus came, lived, died, rose, and ascended. We're not just better off. Like we'd be if your, if your preferred political party gained power. Or the NHS became financially stable. Lord, let it happen. Or Manchester finally had seamless, unified, London-style public transport. Or you brought home an extra 10,000 pounds a year. Amen. It's not simply helpful that Jesus came. It's essential. The outside solution had to be more fundamental than these other changes. More radical, more far-reaching. Like a human body which has every faculty, ability, and system to thrive and grow. But will never do so without oxygen. Something it cannot produce on its own. Something outside of itself. So is our human condition without Christ. Jesus himself said it like this in John 15. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. The biblical writers longed for this type of transcendent help. So much so that they called God the Ancient of Days. The first and the last. The living one. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And the glorious news is that we can know him today. And we can be known by him. He is infinitely other, above, beyond, greater than us. But in Jesus, he has made himself close, near, able to be known. This is one of the most astounding things about the resurrection accounts. Jesus made himself vulnerable, available, touchable to those that needed to know who he was. They needed to know he was who he says he is. In Thomas's moment of need, Jesus did not invite him to a theology lesson. He said, reach out your hand, feel my scars, touch my body. It's me. And today the invitation is not to interact with the church. But it's to reach out and to touch the living Jesus. So when I ask every head bowed, every eye closed in the room, I want to pray over us.